following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Oh man, I love this place because if anybody should know what to expect on a a Sunday morning, it's me, right? But something like that happens and it's totally new and different and awesome and a surprise to me even. Um, Today, as we start, I'd like you to think of two people from your past, specifically from the sixth grade. Canadians, that's grade six. All right, do you remember, remember sixth grade? I want you to think of two people from sixth grade. The first person is your best friend from sixth grade. The second person is the school bully from sixth grade. Now, if this is the same person, this exercise won't work very well. If you were the school bully, it will work even worse. But Just out of curiosity, uh, how many people found it easier to remember the school bully than your best friend from sixth grade? I definitely found it easier. The rest of you remembered your best friend more? Oh, good for you. That must be nice. <laughs> well, assuming that they're different people and you can remember them both, I, what, what, if, what would it be like if each of those people, or one or the other of those people, was your source for understanding God? If that person was your image of who God was and is? Would that be a little bit weird? Might be wonderful, might be awful. It might be somewhere in between. It might be both. So in this series called Speaking of God, we're talking about some of the ways the authors of the Bible refer to God, the metaphors that they used to help their readers understand God more fully, and I think by extension they help us understand God more fully. And last week we started the series off by talking about um, how the Bible speaks of God as a natural object, as a thing, or as part of nature. So we, we looked at four of them. There's a bunch, but we looked at four. We looked at God... Speaking of God as a light, as a rock, as a consuming fire, and as a refuge or a shelter. And if you were here last week, you remember we had different people in the room share how each of those images and metaphors for God um, felt reassuring and ways that they felt maybe a little bit disconcerting. And this week we're going to move to some of the metaphors that are more personal, that is, ones that present God as a type of person rather than as a natural object. So um, we are moving into a territory that's a little bit more sensitive for some of us, maybe. Um, We're not going to talk about God as your best friend or the bully from sixth grade, but we are going to talk about God as a person, which is in some ways a little bit more fraught, a little bit more risky than thinking about God as a natural object or a force of nature. But the Bible does... Uh, contain lots of examples of this kind of thing as well. Now, what we're holding off on are the parental metaphors. The Bible describes God as a father very often. The Bible describes God as having uh, characteristics of a mother as well. And we will look at those next week. So you see the pattern here. We're moving from the most impersonal to the closest and most personal. This week, we're right in the middle with God as a person, but not God as a parent. So what are some of the challenges uh, that come with the Bible's metaphors for God? 
Last week we talked about how uh, language is an inherently limiting way to describe God. That no single word or metaphor for God could ever give us a complete picture of who God is. But that doesn't mean that you just throw up your hands and give up and say, well, we can never speak of God. It only means that you have to be sort of careful and cautious and acknowledge that reality, that language is limiting and limited. Today I want to mention another challenge that will be important for us to acknowledge. Again, it's not one that's going to cause us to throw up our hands and give up, but it's something that we ought to be aware of. And that is that we are affected by the huge cultural difference between the time of the Bible and the time of today. This is a very basic um, fact that you need to keep in mind whenever you interpret the Bible, but particularly maybe when we're doing something as intimate as looking at metaphors of God as a person. Um, Many of the personal metaphors used for God in the Bible are just foreign to us, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but more than that, I want to just observe and acknowledge that we all bring our own biases and prejudices to the text of Scripture. Um, There's a writer named Peter Rollins who said this really well. He wrote a book called How Not to Speak of God. And I just want to read to you uh, a short paragraph from this. And it's on the screen. If you're a visual person, you can follow along. If you're not, if you want to hear with your ears, that's fine too. This is what he says. By acknowledging that all our readings of Scripture are located in a cultural context and have certain prejudices, we understand that engaging with the Bible can never mean that we simply extract meaning from it, but also that we read meaning into it. In being faithful to the text, we must move away from the naive attempt to read it from some neutral heavenly height, and we must attempt to read it as one who has been born of God and thus born of love, for that is the prejudice of God. Here the ideal of reading Scripture as a type of scientific objectivity is replaced by an approach that creatively interprets with love. I love that passage because he acknowledges that we come to the Bible with our biases and prejudices, but he doesn't suggest, as we don't suggest, that you just have to give up. Instead, he directs us to the idea of love, pushes us back into God's love as we seek to interpret Scripture. So that, I think, becomes more and more important as this interpretation begets, begins to become more and more personalized, okay? So, speaking of God as a person, the standard disclaimer will, of course, apply here. Um, each one of these weeks in this, uh, or each one of these examples could be its own sermon, right? So each one of these weeks of the series could be its own series. Uh, people write whole books on these topics, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, right? So we're, we're scratching the surface here. Um, there are a lot of personal metaphors for God. There are, are many that are agricultural. God is described as like a farmer or a vine grower. There are personal metaphors for God related to war, where God is described as a warrior or a champion in battle or a conqueror. And those can be very difficult for our modern ears to hear and our modern hearts to accept. There are lots of metaphors personal for God in the Bible that are legal in nature. Um, Probably most significantly, God as a judge. That's a huge one. There's dozens of examples of that in the Bible. But today we're going to look at just three 
And even then, we'll have to be brief. In fact, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure that I haven't bitten off a little more than I can chew this morning. We are about to find out. So the three that I want to look at today, the metaphors for God that are personal, are God as a shepherd, God as a king, and God as a potter. So let's dive right in with God as a shepherd. Lots and lots of examples um, of this metaphor in the Bible. Um, many of them come from the book of Psalms, which is the song book, the prayer book of, of God's people, the Israelites. Most famously, Psalm 23 starts out with what words? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, our call to worship this morning, another example, was Psalm 95. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Psalm 79 says, We, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation we will recount your praise. This kind of language also comes up in the prophets of Israel. So, for example, Isaiah 40, 11 says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So that pastoral metaphor, meaning of a pasture, is very common, very, very common in Scripture. But let's pause for a minute and think about the visual imagery that comes with this metaphor. God as a shepherd and Jesus as the good shepherd, which is what John 10 is all about. Um, let's just say it has been the source of a great deal of art in the church. Not all of it good. <laughs> all right, so if you're listening on the podcast... You need to do a Google image search for Miami Vice Jesus with a lamb, (laughs) right? He kind of has the business in the front, party in the back hair. Um, He's got this beautiful, lovely little uh, black lamb slung across his shoulders. Oh, it looks like it weighs about four pounds and uh, has never pooped, ever. (laughs) And there's a lovely light behind him, right? But let me show you an actual picture of an actual sheep. Okay, this is a sheep. This is what a sheep actually looks like. Um, All that stuff that's stuck to the bottom of the sheep, imagine that over Jesus' shoulders because that's what would happen if you picked up this sheep, which probably weighs about 95 pounds, right? And uh, you can see what the sheep has done along the wall, behind. Sheep are messy and stinky and noisy and stupid, right? They're cute for about five minutes between the time they're dry after they're born and the time they, like, get into their first pile of mud, right? And that's when, that's when all the, uh, the Jesus painters, like, took a picture to take home with them, right? So the imagery here actually is somewhat problematic. I mean, forget the fact that that we don't have any idea what a shepherd does in, in 2013. Well, Avla is knitting, so she's very concerned with, with, with sheep. Uh, ultimately, it's like... Youth- <laughs> Avila, that should be your biography. <laughs> a one-sentence biography of our friend Avila. I follow shepherds on Twitter. <laughs> that is so awesome. We love you, Avila. So people who are into fiber arts, yes, they maybe have some connection to shepherds. The rest of us are like, I don't know. All right? They have that thing that they hold. 
So who is a shepherd? Is it the hairdryer guy in the first picture? (laughs) Is it something else? Well, a shepherd cares for and tends and uh, protects a flock of sheep. And that is not actually easy work, and it's not comfortable work, and it's not clean work. So thinking of God as a shepherd and Jesus as the good shepherd... I, man, I wish we could just erase all of that pretty imagery from the, from the whole history of Christendom because it's inaccurate and it's, it actually teaches a lie in some ways. I mean, in some ways it's a very important thing too that Jesus is the good shepherd and he, he carries us little weak baby sheep on his shoulders. I absolutely support and encourage you to understand Jesus that way. But eh, don't give yourself too much credit <laughs> as a sheep. You know what I mean? So... Uh, maybe the uh, one of the most uh, one of the richest places in Scripture that talks about God as a shepherd is from the Old Testament. Um, it's Ezekiel 34, and uh, if you want to look it up with me just briefly, you could use these red Bibles if you have one and go to page 702. I'm I'm just going to kind of skate across the the surface of this. Uh, but this passage is from the prophet Ezekiel, a prophet of Israel, and he's, he starts out by condemning, on behalf of the Lord, he condemns the false shepherds of Israel, the people, the priests and the, and, and the, the pastors of Israel who were supposed to care for the people of God and who had instead exploited them and abused them. So, uh, The word of the Lord came to me, mortal, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? It goes on and on and on, berating these shepherds of Israel. And then it transitions in verse 11 to the idea of God as the true shepherd of Israel. So uh, whatever an Israelite person might have had as an image of of these false shepherds, whatever damage had been done to them, by their priests, by the people who were supposed to be caring for them. It was erasing that. It was trying to replace that with the idea of God as the true shepherd. I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I will rescue them from all the places to which they've been scattered. I will feed them with good pasture. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I will make them lie down. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. This pastoral imagery is more pleasant, isn't it? Except, in verse 17, it transitions once again. And now he starts berating the sheep. (laughs) As for you, my flock. I should say that more often. As for you, my flock. Thus says the Lord. (laughs) I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture, but you must tread down with your feet the rest of the pasture? When you drink of clear water, must you foul the rest with your feet? All right, so this is the don't give yourself too much credit as sheep concept. So all of that is contained in this very rich chapter of Ezekiel, and uh, I would encourage you to read it all on your own at some point. And then, of course, John 10, as I mentioned before, is a very important passage in the New Testament. We are going through the book of John, as many of you know, piece by piece. We've been doing it for over a year. We'll probably be doing it for another two or three years before we finish. But when we get to John 10, we'll talk about Jesus as not only the gate for the sheep, through which they must pass from danger into safety, but also as the good shepherd. 
And I think Jesus is doing a couple of things there. One is he's just relying on a metaphor that the people he is immediately connected to can understand. But he's also tying himself to this chapter of the Old Testament with which all his Jewish hearers would have been familiar and saying, I am God. I am the, I am the good shepherd. God is the true shepherd and I am the good shepherd. Okay? All right. So that's God as a shepherd. Again, what's a shepherd? We almost don't even know, but the language is there, and it's important to wrestle with it. Let's move on to God as a king um, or a ruler. A lot of the songs that we sang already this morning brought this out. Stretch out thine eye, victorious king, my reigning sin subdue. This is, again, very present in the book of Psalms. I'll read you just a couple of examples quickly. Psalm 5, 2 says, Listen to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I pray. Psalm ten sixteen, The Lord is King forever and ever. The nations shall perish from His land. Psalm 24, 7, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. One of our songs this morning used that term, the, the King of glory, over and over again. Beautiful term. But once again, we're Americans. We don't need no king. We had one way back in the future. We kicked his butt. July 4th. King George. Right? I mean, I don't want to make light of... I, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not opposed to patriotism. But the point is, we don't like kings as Americans. We are fiercely independent, democratic We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. We don't want to kneel before our leaders. We want to vote for them until they bother us and then we'll vote them out. Or we won't. We'll just complain a lot on Twitter and they'll stay where they are. Way better than having a king. Man. Um, Seriously though, we don't get monarchies in our country. Unless you're one of those people who's really preoccupied with the British monarchy, in which case I have to say I think that's a little bit weird. I don't know. That's probably actually weirder than following shepherds on Twitter. (laughs) But even if we were British, even if we had a queen, even if we were living out that show, what's that show? Downton Abbey, like Right? We'd have to recognize that those monarchies, the monarchies of the Western world, are not the same thing as the monarchies of that ancient Near Eastern culture. They're not the same thing as the monarchy of the biblical era, so even that is a a leap to make, right? So God as a king is kind of a weird thing for a few reasons. One is we don't want kings, and that is actually a problem for for us, by the way. Um, We could do with a lot more capacity for submission. Not, not necessarily to humans, kings and queens, but to each other and to God. And I think that sometimes um, maybe this is a particularly American problem because we are so independent and we don't really know how to bow our knee before anybody serves us really well in some ways and it harms us in other ways. But the one thing that I want to, to drive home about God 
the king, speaking of God as a king, is this really profoundly important story in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 8. If you want to look at it with me, it's page 218. Chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, our editors in this particular Bible have titled this section, Israel Demands a King. See, God did not establish a monarchy as the norm for how his people would be ruled. Up until this point in Israel's history, the people were ruled by uh, judges, right? In the tradition of Moses, who would come and hear. And by the way, when the Bible talks about God as a judge, you have to think about the way Moses was a judge over the people. That's the concept. And it wasn't so much judging like, I'm judging you, you have to go over there, and I'm judging you, you get to go over there. It was more Moses was judging between people who had a dispute. It's kind of a a Judge Judy judge, more so than like a criminal judge. Never thought of that before, but that's what it is. <laughs> so up to that point, it's been, Israel's been ruled by judges, okay? And here's what happens in, in uh, 1 Samuel 8. Samuel, who was the judge, became old and made his sons judges over Israel, Verse 4, all the elders gathered together and came to him and said, You are old and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us then a king to govern us. And these three terrible words that follow, like other nations. God's people had been set apart, had been made holy, which means different and special. And they, in, in, in making this request, rejected that. And said, we want to be like other nations. God says, listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day. Listen to their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And Samuel goes to tell the people that if you want a king, he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. The people wanted a king so that things would be a little bit clearer, a little bit more defined, a little bit easier to understand, and a lot more like the other nations. And what they got was one king who was okay for a while and then got really bad, one king who was really good for a while and then got really bad, one king who was pretty good for a while and then got really bad, and then everything went south from that mighty height. The sons of Solomon split the kingdom and the kings were corrupt and destroyed the nation of Israel, split it in half, and ran it into the ground. That's what kings do. That's what human kings do. And so for us, there's these so many layers, right? Because we're Americans, we don't get kings. Even if we were British, the type of kings that we would get would not be the same type of kings that Israel had. And even if we were Israel, our desire for a king would be born out of stupidity and selfishness and uh, jealousy and an inherent need to reject God, <laughs> right? And replace him with another human like ourselves. 
So we're not doing so well. (laughs) What would it look like for us to redeem the idea of God as our king? I think you have to go to literature to understand a true righteous king, right? You can't look to King George or Queen, whichever one is in there right now. You probably have to look at Aragorn or something like that, right? (laughs) All right. Lastly this morning, I said we have to fly through this, right? I apologize. Speaking of God as a potter, this is a really fascinating image to me. When you think about God as a potter and yourself as the clay, which is the way the scriptures lay this out, very often that can lead you to believe that you have no role to play, that you are literally a passive lump. Metaphorically a passive lump, but, you know, something that's being shaped against your will or that, in fact, you have no capacity to have a will. You are just whatever clay is made of, dirt and sand and, uh, and clay. It's made of clay. Clay is a thing, right? It's not made of something else. All right, fine. Thank you. I, there's a lot of science-y people in the room. I'm a, I'm a humanities-y person, so I th- thank you. I love the, the eye-rolling and correction that I get from certain sections of the room. Clay is just clay, we've learned, and it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't have any will or ability to assert itself. And I think that that translates to a theological understanding which is made worse by certain interpretations of Romans chapter 9. By the way, if you are an inside baseball church person, Calvinists love Romans chapter 9. Love it. (laughs) If you don't know what that means, thanks be to God. (laughs) Romans chapter 9, Paul, the Apostle Paul, uses this idea of God as a clay, or God as the potter and the people as clay, and he can do whatever he wants with the clay. But I don't think that it's quite fair to interpret Romans 9 without looking at the Old Testament prerequisite, if you will, or the prequel to this idea, which is in Jeremiah 18. And ultimately, I don't think that the interpretation that some people arrive at out of Romans 9, which is that you're a passive lump and you can't do anything for yourself, you have no role to play in this world except to be formed by an outside force, I think that interpretation... um, is not actually consistent with the broader biblical understanding of God as a potter and us as the clay, all right? Would you look with me at one last passage of Scripture this morning? Jeremiah 18, Red Bibles, is page 629. This is a really neat thing. God sends the prophet Jeremiah down to the potter's house to observe. We could, do a lot, we could stand to do a lot more going somewhere to observe and just listening for what God might have to teach us. So Jeremiah says, I went down to the potter's house and there he was working at his wheel. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands and he reworked it into another vessel as seemed good to him. How many of you are potters or have, have worked with a potter's wheel? Okay, a handful of people in the room have done that. It's a really neat thing. Um, I've seen some of your work, and it's amazing. 
really amazing. The rest of us are going to have to kind of figure this out for ourselves in some way. Here's what he says. The word of the Lord came to me. Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done, says the Lord, just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I may declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. So far we have the, the deterministic thing is ready to come rolling out, isn't it? God's doing whatever he wants and you're the clay and you're going to like it or lump it. It doesn't really matter because it's going to happen to you. But wait, listen to what happens in verse 8. But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind. This is God saying, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. And at another moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good that had intended to do to it. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, Look, I am a potter shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Turn now, all of you, from your evil way and amend your ways and your doings. What an amazing, amazing concept this is. The clay makes the potter change his mind with its behavior. Explain that one, determinists, (laughs) fatalists, and my brothers and sisters who descend from the Swiss theologian we mentioned earlier. The image of God as a potter that's presented in Jeremiah 18 is one who is flexible and responds according to the behavior of the clay. So what that tells me is you can't just take a metaphor and make it say whatever you want it to say based on however you might understand that concept, right? If you've worked with clay, you might have an idea of what your role is as the potter and what the clay's role is. That's not necessarily, every part of that does not necessarily apply to the biblical metaphor. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. What I would suggest as we wrap up here is that maybe we could focus instead on a different part of the metaphor which is more accessible and more beautiful to me anyway. And that is that God is the artist of the universe and we are his creation. We are the product of his artistry. We are his masterpiece. One of the ways we explain the name of our church. I get this question all the time when I say I'm the pastor at Artisan Church. They say, oh, Artisan Church. Why did you call the church Artisan Church? Or why is it called Artisan Church? They didn't know that I was part of naming it. My answer is the same. Look at Ephesians 2.10. This is right at the front of our, our About Us page in the website. We are God's workmanship. One translation says we are God's masterpiece. Another translation says we are what he has made us created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God did a good work as an artist. Think of him as a potter making something beautiful. And we are the something beautiful. But it's bigger than that and better than that and more than that. He made us and did a good work in doing so so that we could make things. 
and so that we could make good works and do good things. We are made in the image of the maker. Part of who we are called to be is potters in our own world who shape and make beautiful things like the master potter. If you prefer a paint art metaphor or a dance art metaphor or a music art metaphor or maybe you are a a more uh, function over form craftsperson, all of this stuff applies. God is a maker. We are his product. But we are alive and we have will and we have a responsibility and a calling and a privilege to make and build and do and to call forth beauty all around us. So that's, to me, a, a, maybe a more hopeful and beautiful thing to end on today than some of these difficult metaphors we've had to wrestle through and even some of the difficult understandings of God as a potter that we've tried to wrestle with. Um, he made us so that we could make things. Let's pray. God, we thank you as we do almost every week for the gift of Scripture, for the rich resource it is, for all the many ways it helps us to understand who you are and who we are in relation to you. We pray, O Lord, that you would give us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, the wisdom to understand the difficult language that we encounter sometimes in the text. That you would help us, by the power of your Spirit, to have the courage to live into our calling as your people. That we would have, by the power of your Holy Spirit, the humility to realize what it means to be a sheep in your pasture. That we would have, by the power of your Holy Spirit, the capacity to be subject of a kingdom despite everything in us that kicks against the idea that anyone, even you, should rule over us. And we pray with great hopefulness, God, who is the potter, that we would make choices that would allow us to be formed by you into something beautiful and useful. And that in that process, we would also live out our calling to be makers, to be builders, to be artists, to do the good works that you have called us to do and prepared us in advance to do in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, and it's into him that we place all our hope. Amen. Well, um, thank you. That was a long and bumpy road, and we went fast. We'd like to respond now, uh, as is our custom, to the Word of God with communion and with prayer. Members of our prayer team will be waiting up here. If you'd like to have prayer, uh, personalized prayer with somebody for something that's going on in your life, please feel free to take advantage of that. If you'd like to sit and pray and think in your own seat, that's fine too. If you're a follower of Jesus and you want once again to come to this table to renew your commitment to Him, to renew your trust in Him, to receive again from him the strength that your soul needs to walk this road. This table is open to you. No matter what church tradition you come from, uh, anyone who's following Jesus is welcome to his table. You can tear off a piece of this bread, which today is unleavened, and dip it in the wine or the juice. Um, Your children can participate if you wish. 
Um, receive it as an act of remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice for you, um, which is the source of the forgiveness of your sins. Let's continue to worship him together. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.